0: Welcome to episode number 49, Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm Justin Gordon, your host, and in this episode, we have Shiv Gaglani, who is the co-founder and CEO of Osmosis, and let me tell you about this company. Osmosis is a medical and health sciences education technology company aimed at revolutionizing the way clinicians learn and retain information. And their personalized and social learning platform and high-quality content are used by more than eight hundred thousand, eight hundred thousand current and future clinicians. That is just absurd. And they have around a million subscribers on YouTube and have a hundred million total video views. Absolutely incredible. And in this episode, we discuss just how Shiv built this company. Obviously, there was a, a fair amount of help to do this, but it's incredible, absolutely incredible. We go through the entire thing, how he's launched and grew this business, and what kind of the future looks like for the company moving forward. And recently, I began coaching, helping people launch and grow businesses, helping people launch podcasts, find some insights into this whole business world or podcasting at justgogrind.com slash coaching. So go ahead and check that out. As always, the show notes for this episode are at JustGoGrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show. If you go to iTunes, leave a rating review. That would be much appreciated. You can also subscribe in there as well. Without further ado, here is Shiv Kaglani from Osmosis. Shiv, welcome to
1: the show. Thanks for having me, Justin.
0: Yeah, Happy to have you on. Excited to have you on. I heard about what you were doing, all the things you are working on. And it's just one, very impressive. Two, seems like an incredible mission. And I'm curious with Osmosis, how did this get started?
1: Yeah, so my co-founder, Ryan, and I were medical students at Johns Hopkins. And because of serendipity, you know, his last name is Haynes. My last name is Gaglani. We were paired up as anatomy partners, team-based learning partners. <laughs> And he has a PhD in neuroscience. And I had done a lot of educational work in the past. And we started talking about how much more efficient our own experience in medical school could be. And that was the inception of osmosis.
0: That's awesome. And, you know, obviously, we're gonna dig deeper into that. But even before that, so obviously a med school, but you've been interested in medicine for a while before then, Or was it just something like more recent? I'm curious about that, too.
1: Yeah, you know, I grew up in South Africa. Uh, and my dad was a is a physician who was running a hospital there. And so when you know, I'd often go with him to the hospital. And that's where I got a lot of interest. I mean, everyone wants to be like their dad, I think when they're growing up, <laughs> and I was no exception. And my yeah. mom is a physical therapist, my sister's a dentist. So me not having completed my degree, I'm sort of the black sheep in the, uh, in the family. <laughs> and we joke that between all the Gaglanis, we could treat anybody. Yeah, so I was I've been interested in medicine for a long time. Then when we moved to Cape Canaveral, Florida, which is the home base of NASA. You know, there were just so many engineers, so much high tech in that whole area. Florida Institute of Technology, the flagship campus there. And so I got super interested in the intersection of medicine and technology. And that's what led me to, you know, go into health tech and biotech.
0: That's awesome. And I noticed uh, looking through, doing the research, obviously before you started Osmosis, you, were, I think we're doing some, you're an editor for MedGadget and also co-founder and chairman of Quantified Care. So what was your involvement with those two organizations?
1: Yeah. So between the years of 2010 and 2013, there was a lot of starts, right? So created osmosis, created the smartphone physical, which became Quantified Care and created a, or was an editor for MedGadget. And so yeah. there's a lot of synergy between all of that. So in writing for MedGadget and I wrote hundreds of articles for this health tech blog um, <laughs> that's very niche, but very well read uh, among our scene. Um, yeah. I started meeting all these people who were doing really cool devices, everything from sensors that that can tell you if you know, tell a diabetic if there's too much pressure on their feet, um, uh, to, you know, glaucoma medications and whatnot. And so I got super engaged and interested in how health tech was evolving. And that's what led to me developing something called the smartphone physical, which we debuted at Ted med in 2013. Um, essentially, could we do a physical exam with a smartphone and peripheral devices? And then that is what led to the creation of Quantified Care. So I co-founded Quantified Care with a biomedical engineering PhD student at Hopkins, best, one of my best friends, Mike Batista. And he, yeah. he was running the company, but my main attention was focused on osmosis over the
0: last few years. Okay. And looking back to that point in time, you mentioned, yeah, we founded this thing and this thing. Has entrepreneurship been something that's kind of been in your blood as well? Because I know you mentioned like the, obviously the medical background, but where is the entrepreneurship side of you come from?
1: Yeah. So in retrospect, I think I've always been kind of starting things and kind of, you know, being put into or going for leadership roles. So in college, I started the Harvard Undergraduate Research Association, which I'm very glad to know that we started in 2007. And, you know, 12 years later, it's still active. And so it's really great to be able to see things that, you know, ideas that you can conceive of, you, you bring a team together, it's a lot of fun to start doing that and then to have the longevity. But one of the things one of my business school professors told me that made a big impact um, in how I started approaching entrepreneurship was, you know, you don't make your impact, you don't get paid, you don't make your impact by just starting things, you have to finish them. And so even though 2011 to 2013, there was a lot of starts, really, I've become a lot more focused over the past few years. And that's one of the key lessons I think I've learned as an entrepreneur. And I think most entrepreneurs have to learn is you have to be able to focus. Not everyone can be Elon Musk. And. (laughs) <laughs> and run SpaceX and Tesla. Maybe at that point when you have enough resources, you can find out how to do that. But for the most part, I found that focus is kind of the mantra for the last few years.
0: Yeah. And how has that played out in terms of osmosis with focus? So like there's so many things you could do with the company. Like, how do you decide on what you work on?
1: That's the you know million dollar question <laughs> really. It's there's this law, Packard's law. I think after the Hewlett Packard, and I love it. It says companies don't die from starvation for having too few opportunities; they die from indigestion from taking on too many opportunities. And I think all of us have have you know have eaten too much and and known how painful that is for the next you know twelve hours. I think you know there's tons of opportunities coming your way, especially as you grow and get more people. You get some fundraising. You know we get emails every day asking us to. Partner in some capacity, and literally, my um, my team bought me a button for my thirtieth birthday in January. A no button, which sits on my desk, and <laughs> I literally press the no button. Like it, I actually do this. I I press this no button, and it says no in like ten different ways, and it feels really good to be able to say like no. Like this is this sounds great. Old Shiv would have been like yes, let's do this. New, <laughs> new Shiv at least says maybe, if not no. Yeah. Or not right now. At le- at not least. right now. <laughs> yeah. Let's That's, wait six months. Let's, let's get ahead of partnerships or something <laughs> to, to do that instead.
0: Exactly. Because you can definitely like, hand things off to other people too, especially as you grow and have the resources to do so. And, and I want to go back to the early days of osmosis because a lot of people listen to this, you know, have an idea, they don't know what to do those first steps. So for you, what were
1: some of those first steps once you had the idea for osmosis? It's a really good question. We didn't intend osmosis to be the company it is today, right? We didn't, we weren't, as med students, we weren't like, hey, let's build a company and take time off med school and do this thing. It was really just solving our own problem. And I think that's a common thread for a lot of people who go into entrepreneurship. I think you have to have deep conviction and deep empathy for what you're doing for the end user. And that's much easier if you're the end user and you have deep conviction in, in solving your problem. And so we built a pilot. Now it's called an MVP, minimum viable product. Just to see if it would help us during med school, and then we found out that a bunch of our classmates wanted to use it. And then not only did our classmates want to use it, they were telling their friends at other med schools. So within a month of launching our pilot or MVP, a bunch of students from Tufts and Northwestern and other schools started messaging us saying, "Hey, can we use this at our school?" That's when we decided, "Hey, maybe we should take some time off, like the summer initially, but then actually take time off med school to see if we can, you know, put into places, put into uh, place." things that we're interested in in making osmosis bigger so we did a tech incubator called dream at health in philadelphia and that gave us some initial seed capital as well as mentorship and and a time frame a deadline for demo day that got us got us serious about it and we launched the app osmosis mobile app during that time went from 200 students at hopkins med who were using it to you know five thousand within three months goodness
0: that is amazing growth and you mentioned now that the mvp so i'm curious as to what that kind of looked like initially
1: it's almost embarrassing right like <laughs> <laughs> i think there's a, i forgot who said it but you know if you aren't embarrassed by a minimum viable product you know you it's not a minimum viable product right it sounds like uh-huh. reed hoffman maybe yeah i think he mentioned that yeah yeah i think that's right i think you're right and so you know i i think there's you know there's some pushback on some of that now especially when you're in healthcare. you know obviously there's been some very high profile failures like Theranos. <laughs> yep. Where if your goal is to help patients eventually or help the people who are going to help the patients, you know, MVP sort of, you don't you don't necessarily want to move fast and break things. So it's this balance of knowing when to get validation and de-risk your assumptions through an MVP and when to have something that you actually, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna diagnose patients, you wanna make sure the diagnosis is accurate because that's somebody's life. And so ours was very bare bones. It was a web platform only. And I think it only worked on Chrome or Firefox. And it was literally just a platform where people could log in and create questions and flashcards and share those with their classmates. But that got enough traction that it then gave us the you know motivation to say, okay, let's give this a facelift. Okay, let's make it you know work on mobile, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah. And with this MVP, so did you have to have a developer help with that? Or who was involved
1: then with it initially? Yeah. So I'm very fortunate in that my co-founder, the PhD in neuroscience, Ryan, taught himself to code when he was 11. <laughs> His nickname among our friends circle at Hopkins was Dr. Zuckerberg, because Good he night. would often sit in the back of the lecture hall and code osmosis or something else. And so not only was he my co-founder, he became my best friend, my best man at my wedding. He's just sort of like this genius who, who can be very analytical about you know the learning science that goes into osmosis and then actually code it to make it happen.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. And that's one of those things where also think about putting yourself in the right environment where you're around people that are are smart and doing things. And then yeah, these types of opportunities come up, which is for me, you know, with MBA at USC, it's like, that's the reason why to be around people that are doing things and like, you never know who you're going to meet. So it can be so beneficial moving forward. And then you mentioned you had gotten like 5,000 people using this after the accelerator.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yep. We, we did the the traditional waitlist thing, you know, like how Dropbox said, Hey, we have a, they posted on Hacker News and said, "Hey, we're going to be building this thing. Is there any, any interest?" And I think like a hundred thousand people signed up for the waitlist. Okay, um, and then they took that as validation to their investors, saying, "Look, people want this thing." Right. And so we we had done something similar because of Dreamit. So we got some really great advice at Dreamit, which was don't just build it and launch it. Like get some publicity now. Where you know start start getting people on a waitlist, saying, "Hey, you know we're we're going to get." The first thousand people who sign up are going to get early access to the beta Osmosis Mobile, which is going to change medical education. And so we got you know more than a th- we got five thousand, not, not just a thousand. So Jeez. That, that went pretty well.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned that you took some time off, to obviously to be able to work on this. And then at what point did you know that you weren't going to go back to school yet? Like you knew, like okay, this is going to be an indefinite amount of time.
1: You know, I think the passion grew. So I think that's one core thing is that there are ups and downs, and certainly you know we we had 5,000 people sign up, not all of them were daily active users, right? right? So clearly, and then maybe some of the feedback was, you know, this isn't as good as a competitor. <laughs> you know, you get those kind of things and you have to learn how to how to overcome that. I just read a book by Felicis Ventures, which is a great VC out of Silicon Valley that you know, we've been talking to for some time. They have invested in a lot of iconic brands like Fitbit and Shopify. And the book had, the first chapter was from Aaron Levy of Box, and he talked about how, when uh, Google Drive came out, um, which would you know potentially decimate the storage business, you know that would knock him out for two or three days with the low the, the volatility of that. But he sort of developed thick skin and, and uh, stoic, stoic type type of attitude, so that similar announcement would only knock him out for like two or three hours. And so for us, we have those ups and downs where we're like, you know, should we go back to med school? Like that's not a bad plan B, yeah. and we still want to be doctors. But I think over the years our conviction for what we're doing has grown even more. And you know we do eventually want to go back and finish med school, but right now the scale of impact we're able to have is what keeps us deferring year after year and t- talking to our dean and saying, hey, maybe next year, maybe next year. And, yeah. and frankly, they're pretty excited about the progress we've made because I mentioned 5,000 when we left med school in the first year, we're about to cross a million YouTube subscribers and overall an aggregate have probably reached around 5 million people just watching the videos and consuming the platform.
0: Yeah. That's incredible. In a relatively short amount of time too, which is, which is very impressive. And one of the things you mentioned is like the scale of impact. And I think that's important for entrepreneurs to kind of think about as well, or even anyone in their career, because, you know, as a, I don't know if you've read 80,000 hours, if you've heard of that book or the website, it's no, I'd like to. Yeah. It's definitely worth checking out. It's all about basically yeah, how do you having an impactful career and like, what is the actual like quantifiable measurable impact? And even like as a doctor, you can add up, you know, how many people you're actually impacting, but to the point of creating a platform then that educates other people to become them doctors or whatever like it can have a much bigger impact potentially than you ever could have by yourself working in the field so it, like when someone's starting an idea it's something to think about like what is the impact you actually want to have and like for me for instance like i used to be a personal trainer working one on one with clients and i knew that i'd never be able to really make I like really work with more than like 30, 40, 50 people a week. But when I started blogging about it for Just Go Fitness, then it was like, wait a minute, I'm getting people from all over the world to check out this writing and potentially benefit from that. So it's was like, I'm way more interested in that than just a couple people. So there's definitely something to be said for thinking about that when you're launching a business and thinking about what kind of business you want to have. And with what you've done with growing, what do you think has been like the most important, critical things to get to that almost, you know, million YouTube subscribers.
1: Yeah. that's. I mean, so first of all, your point is really well taken. And one thing I would qualify it with, though, is the fact that you probably wouldn't have been able to write good blog content and, and create all this stuff without that personal experience one-on-one working with clients. And, right. and so I think that's really key is like the balance of being able to do things on a very personal individual level and relate to your end users and customers, but then scale that, you know, take those lessons away from them. From those conversations and interactions and then develop a scalable thing. So for us, I think, like you, you know, it starts with the product and just creating really good content and product, right? If you're in it just to make money, like you aren't going to be passionate about the, the content of the product as much as you should be. And you know, YC's Paul Graham says, better to have hundred people love you than ten thousand people who kind of like you. Yeah. And that's true. You know, it's a hundred true fans thing that he told Brian Chesky at Airbnb, which you know helped them really scale eventually is you want to be true to your product and content. That's the number one reason we've scaled as much, right? You don't get to a million YouTube subscribers if you're releasing crap. And so the audience has rewarded us for that and they want more of this content, more of this product. So that's number one. And then the second is just being willing to make minor deviations or pivots along the way. Like we were a product company, a platform, where we were just going to license or aggregate a bunch of other people's content. And then as we kept uh, hitting the market with what we're doing and hitting like a plateau of growth for the platform, we were like, okay, we need to think about a content strategy. And that's when I was in business school at the time. That's when we recruited the team that ran Khan Academy health and medicine that essentially created our entire video library. And that's, you know, that was one of the main levers of growth in the past few years.
0: Yeah. And with that, recruiting that team. So what was the pitch like for that? It's just like, we have this growing, this fast growing platform. It's an
1: important thing. And we'd love to have you on board. Like, how did that go? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. So, you know, a lot of these conversations, I'm a big fan of Nicholas Nassim Taleb, who wrote The Black Swan and anti And, you know, he talks in The Black Swan about this narrative fallacy. And I think uh, whenever you try summarizing the entrepreneurs' journeys in, you know, 10, 20, 30 minutes, there's this narrative that, that comes in like, oh, of course we could have predicted Airbnb would have been successful. <laughs> or, of course we could predict that World War one would have happened. Right. It was our, our stuke. I think there's this narrative fallacy where I have to like remember that no, we did not know we were going to bring on Khan Academy team, right? Because initially, they were sort of competitors. Uh, Initially, we weren't excited about, like, they wanted us to join them. But then things happened, a lot of things came together, like their head of medicine and I started becoming friends at conferences, and having these really deep and awesome discussions where we found out that there was a lot of shared vision. It also coincided with the fact that Sal Khan and Khan Academy wanted to double down on K-12. And so, As a doctor, Rishi was very interested in scaling to nursing and PA and pharmacy and all the health professionals and even patients, whereas at Khan Academy, it was going to be very much like high school biology and and things like that. Yeah. So it was very mutual. It it wasn't like they just left. It was a very win-win situation for, for both Khan Academy and for osmosis.
0: Yeah. And one of the things like after looking through like the videos and just the depth of how much, how many you have and everything, the curriculum side of it, in terms of choosing what videos and how many you put out and which ones you put out, like how are those decisions made even like initially versus now? I'm curious about the curriculum side of it.
1: Yeah. It's a really, really insightful question. So the, the, um, this comes on to focus as well. So our core strategy is to virtualize medical and other health professional schools, Yeah. right? So there's a lot of wasted time in the lecture hall. And there's frankly, in nursing, there's a shortage of nursing faculty because nursing faculty aren't paid as well as practicing nurses. So it, nursing schools, for how much demand we have for nursing, you know, nurse practitioner is, I think, number five of the top 15 fastest growing professions in the US. And it's it happens to be the only one in that list. That's a median salary of over $100,000. So it's a very popular profession but we don't have enough nursing faculty to educate them. And so between shortages of faculty, of good faculty, as well as of the fact that a lot of people who need to go into health professionals careers don't have the time or money to go and sit in lecture halls for months at a time, yeah, there's a big push towards online education. And so our core content strategy is let's take all the didactic material that somebody has to know from anatomy to radiology to physiology, et cetera, and virtualize that so anybody anywhere can get these bite sized educational chunks and get the core didactic knowledge so they can get to the clinic faster, where then they learn the actual you know, patient care and do the simulations and and do kind of the apprenticeship that I think is still necessary for health education. So we've now have 1200 videos, the vast majority of which are core content for yep. health professional degrees. But we've started experimenting with other content, like we do a lot of content partnerships. So even though rare disorders are not necessarily part of the core content for a lot of health professionals, we have this very amazing partnership with the National Organization for Rare Disorders where we're trying to create you know, hundreds of videos on underrepresented diseases and disorders because while they aren't super common, for anyone who, has, who knows somebody who has it or has a family member who has a rare disorder, it's the most important thing. Yeah. And so that's part of our, our mission is we wanna empower clinicians and caregivers with this learning experience. It's interesting you mentioned the, the rarest,
0: rare disorders, because I think it, would, it might have been in the 80000 hours book again, but it was something mentioning like, yeah, these these rare disorders, like they're not going to get as much funding, they're not going to get as much attention, because there's less people that obviously get them. So it's like, how do you attack that problem then, like, how do you determine it? Because you're not going to affect as many people through working on this. But I think it's important that you mentioned, like, obviously, at least providing the education so people can potentially figure these things out, right? And, and solve these problems. So it's, it's important, but I don't don't really know how that, how that actually, how you actually solve that problem with these rare disorders.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, I think there's a lot of policies. So like pharmaceutical companies are encouraged to develop drugs for rare disorders, because they get, extended patent protection. Some of these rare disorder interventions are super expensive though, right? And not necessarily covered by insurance. It is an intractable problem. But the problem that we're trying to solve with Nord is just simply the one of education. Yeah, I think it takes an average uh, maybe off on the stat, but at least five to nine years somewhere in that range for someone with a rare disorder to get the actual diagnosis correct. Because so few clinicians see these that it's hard to actually diagnose. So that's one problem we're trying to attack. Let's actually expose Health professional students, and health professionals to more of these, so that maybe they're we can reduce the time to diagnosis. The other problem is, you know, when someone gets a rare disorder, many cases these these families are so inspiring. They learn everything they can about that disorder, and in many cases, know more than their doctors about that. And they often will contribute. They'll start foundations. They'll contribute to the literature themselves. And so, you know, why wouldn't we want to be involved in in working with these families and 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 patient advocacy groups? It's just such a um, such a great thing for you know, the world, but also for our company, I'll I'll be honest that a lot of these things, they don't actually make, you know, make an impact on the revenue model for osmosis, but they make a outsized impact on the team morale. And that's one thing I've learned, too, is, you know, you've got to balance kind of the it's double bottom line, you've got to figure out ways to keep everyone in your team motivated and excited about what you're doing for the world. Because oftentimes that's what's going to get, get you through the difficult times when, you know, maybe the growth isn't as fast as you want it or someone leaves a team or things like that. It's the core belief in what we're doing for the world.
0: Yeah. And that's something like I think Richard Branson talked about where it was, you know, if you take care of your employees and they'll take care of the customers. Like So I mean, your employees are first. So like, to your point, like you have to do whatever you can to take care of them because then they will do a fight for your company. And then, yeah. Working with the uh, anyone else you work with, but and to that point of like the team, how has that grown over time? I, I mean, now obviously you have a lot more going on. How has that grown over time?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a really <laughs> good question too. So I think there's different stages of growth. So you know, to get from zero to you know low couple million in revenue. You can have this core team that you know where everyone's sort of a generalist right like i didn't know what i was doing when i started osmosis i still don't know what i'm doing i think you know you're kind of figuring out as (laughs) you know yeah but you're trying to hire people who you can get along with who are going to shape the culture whose values align with what 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 your values are and then who are generalists who don't mind doing things i joke that you know for the first year at osmosis when we were in philly doing dream at health i was the ceo of the company on linkedin but I was honestly also the dishwasher and janitor <laughs> in that I would keep the office space in the, the house clean and make a nice work environment. So you know, we hired a bunch of generalists who we really loved working with and people have picked up different roles along the way. But now we're in a different stage of growth where we're trying to you know, really scale this thing. And so now we're starting to hire on people who are specialists, who have come from companies where they've grown user bases you know, from a couple hundred thousand to tens of millions. Right? So they have that skill set. They know what they've done in the past. And they've come on either as consultants who then become full-time team members or consultants who help develop that skill set in our team. And so we fortunately have been very blessed to have not only a super value and mission-aligned team, but one that's been retained. We've had extremely low turnover because I think people are getting what Dan Pink says are the three essential ingredients for fulfillment, which is autonomy. You know, we're a fully remote company, so people can kind of set their working schedules. Uh, Autonomy, flexibility, uh, purpose. Clearly, we just talked about all the purpose and, and meaning that the working in healthcare and education derives. Yeah. Autonomy, purpose, and mastery. So they're learning. A perfect example. I'm here out in Colorado on a trip with some of our investors and teammates. One of our guys, the, the voice behind our videos and the style of our videos, is a guy named Tanner Marshall. He's our creative director. So he initially came on as a video producer, and now he's our head designer and a coder on the product team. So. He's been interested in so many different things. He's sort of our Da Vinci (laughs) on our team. And and in general, he's the closest. I literally bought him the book Da Vinci after I read it, because as I was reading Walter Isaacson's bio on Da Vinci, like this is the guy who I think the one person (laughs) I know in the world who's like most similar to Da Vinci, terms of art and science. And so he taught himself to code while he was doing videos for us. And now is like one of our core developers. Um, So I think that's how the team has evolved, where you get these star players who are willing to have a growth mindset and pick up pieces. And then, and then they're, um, they're going to be around the table still when you, when you keep growing. Yeah. And
0: that's, that's something I actually just had a different interview with someone yesterday who's scaled their consulting company to like 200 people now on the team after starting with like, you know, I think three or four. And she was like, yeah, the hiring part, it's just like, it evolves over time. You have to get the people who are just smart initially, who can just do things and figure things out. And like, you can figure out your team later on. And her, her company's all remote too. So it's like, such a challenge with that. And you mentioned something though, with the revenue model earlier, I'm curious as to what early on that business model, revenue model kind of
1: looked like for you. So that's another thing where we evolved. So initially it was like buying a digital textbook where you would buy a pack of questions or a pack of content on osmosis for a one-time fixed fee. Um, And then we realized this was bad on two reasons. One is subscription revenue is much better, (laughs) right? Yes. Because it's it's, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a, it is really a, a, great, a much better model. And because, you know, you need as you continue building and, and growing the product, like it gets more valuable, right? So it makes sense for people who want to use it for longer to be able to, you know, kind of help fund that growth to annual subscriptions. So we changed to a subscription model. We also raised our prices, which was really interesting because I think what we found with market research was our prices were too low and people, you know, they're paying $40,000 a year to go to med school. Yeah. And to pay like fifty dollars for an app or for a tool, one time, like they just don't see it as quality. And so when we raised the prices, we actually got higher conversion. <laughs> we pivoted to a subscription model with higher prices. But we do. I want want to make one thing clear too is where osmosis.org because we have a freemium model. So you can get a lot of benefit from a, a bunch of our free videos and free features. And in many cases, we give completely free access to lower and middle income countries. So we have over two thousand. Uh, students in Syria who are using everything on osmosis totally for free. Same in Sub Saharan Africa. We have a bunch of collaborations with universities there. And it's kind of like geographical arbitrage where, like, the, the more highly resourced medical and nursing schools in the US and in Australia and in Sweden, they're the ones who are kind of subsidizing access for others uh, around the right.
0: world. Right. And you, you mentioned about around the world. I know you also had a different YouTube channel with like different languages. How do you approach that from a content perspective of like people who don't just speak
1: English? Yeah, it's great. You do your research. You've seen probably Osmosis VM. I have seen, uh, seen. <laughs> indeed one of the channels we have. <laughs> so th- we weren't planning to translate content initially. It was really the community that came to us, right? So of the million subscribers on YouTube, again, literally every week we get an email from someone in some country that wants to translate our videos. Uh, just two days ago, someone sent me, I think, Turkish, and you know we want to support them. So YouTube fortunately has made it possible to to give them the ability to submit captions to our videos. We've also done specific video collaborations in other languages. So in an ideal world, we would be able to translate all of our content so that not only health professionals, but patients in those countries would benefit. And going back to the Syrian example, so we gave completely free access to 2,000 Syrian students, and a couple of dozen of those students actually came back to us and did a project where they translated our videos into Arabic. Oh, wow. And now Arabic is our like top three language in terms of subtitles being watched on osmosis. Jeez. So it's it's kind of being creative and finding those win-win opportunities.
0: Yeah. And there's always a room for growth. Actually, I've come from like a marketing digital marketing background. I remember someone saying a similar thing with, they were like expanded their content to just different languages. And now it's like, I don't know if it's like more than 50% or something of like all of their views and whatever come from like non-English speaking people. It's just kind of a crazy arbitrage too. And for your business, obviously trying to help as many people as possible and, There's a huge market outside of people who just speak English. So it seems like the the perfect strategy. And one of the things I wanted to ask about too is when did the business school thing come into play for you with this?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I kind of just dropped that in my (laughs) way. (laughs) So in college, I was MD, PhD track. And the reason that the MD was meet with the patients, get the ideas for things that need to be worked on. And the PhD was contribute to the inventions and discoveries that'll be scalable. I realized uh, over the years that there's so many awesome things that have been already discovered and published that just haven't had a reached as many people as they should have because there's this gap. This It's called translational gap. And so I switched from MD-PhD to MD-MBA. So I knew going into med school that I was going to go to business school and I just kept deferring it. And so after we took a year off to, to start Osmosis and do the tech incubator, it just made sense for me to go to business school as we were working on the product. And start developing not only the skills and knowledge, but the connections. And so really the first money in on our seed round was my business school professors. And I learned a lot and made a lot of connections during those two years that contribute to osmosis. And you know, most people like you know this because you're doing this while you're in business school. You know, the lessons you're learning in the classroom stick a lot better yeah. if you haven't something applicable, something that you can apply them immediately to. So I would sit in like a marketing class and then like later that weekend, you know, figure out, oh, this is what a go-to-market strategy should look like and and then develop that for osmosis. So it wasn't just like abstract, it was really applied during business. Yeah.
0: School. And something that like you mentioned there too, with being able to apply it right away to what you're working on. It's also like when you're reading different books, depending on where you're at in your life and your stage and what you're working on, I've realized like the value in rereading books because you have a different lens at that time is, is tremendous. So definitely suggest to people like even like, books like the lean startup or whatever, like if you're, if you're working at a different company now than you were before, when you were reading it, it can be valuable because you forget certain things. So it's definitely something that's helpful. And then I've also, yeah, like you mentioned in business school now realized that certain things I'm like, oh yeah, thinking about how to grow a different idea I have. And it kind of evolves over time. It's nice to have, to have both. And was that, so that was like a part-time program then, or you, you were full-time MBA as well, or which were you doing at the time?
1: Yeah, I, I did the full time. I did you the full time. So, 2014 to 2016, I was full time. But fortunately, the first year is all the required curriculum. The second year is all electives. So, I sculpted all my electives courses around Osmosis. Like I was so, uh, you know, appreciative and grateful to the business school because they there was a course on international development and education, and they funded my trip to Sub-Saharan Africa where I created those partnerships uh, with like the University of Namibia and University of Cape Town to provide Osmosis to those schools. So. I like to say that I was ninety percent osmosis (laughs) during those two years, and ten percent business. Yeah, yeah. You know know where your priorities are. That's fine. And
0: you mentioned like this the seed round. You actually had your uh, professors invest. Like, how did the fundraising go? How has it gone? I guess for osmosis so far, and what's that process been like?
1: We've been very lucky again um, with that. So we were the only company out of Demo Day from Dream at Health back in like twenty thirteen that we didn't ask for funding. So. Maybe because Ryan and I are medical students, like we are very capital efficient, we've learned to live on very little <laughs> money, and we didn't want much money because we've heard horror stories about you get the wrong investors, and you know they can change your vision, they can replace you, you know that kind of stuff. And so we didn't want that. we wanted to grow on our revenue, and fortunately, we were profitable, we became profitable pretty quickly and were able to do that. But then we realized after I finished business school and we started producing all this content, that it would take us years to develop as much content as we needed. Yeah. And so it made sense for us to say, hey, what if we hired a couple more illustrators and editors? What if we got on a few more developers? And so we started seeing what was possible with capital, not only capital, but then the right relationships. And so we were very kind of opportunistic. We didn't go out saying, hey, we're gonna raise $2 million on this these terms. <laughs> we sort of had terms and then over the course of a year, a bunch of value add investors came our way. And I'm glad that we did it that way because first of all, we didn't need $2 million immediately, right? If you get $2 million immediately, like what are you going to do yeah. with, you know, if your burn is 50K a month, right? <laughs> you <laughs> yep. have a ton of time and like, then you have to figure out what the cash management is. And you may become wasteful. In that book by Felicis Ventures, there's a great quote from one of the founders, I'm trying to remember which one, but uh, he said, you know, when you have more money, that's when you should be more frugal. Because when you have little money, you're inherently frugal because you see the runway. Right. But when you have a ton of money in the bank, you don't necessarily see the runway and you can have all these, you can get fat real quick. But yeah. you're a personal trainer. The analogy I like to use for my company is you go through these you know, uh, leaning and bulking phases. <laughs> and so if you wanna be like a strong and ripped company that's doing amazing things, um, you know, eventually if you're gonna try gaining gaining muscle, you're gonna gain some fat along the way. And so you have to kind of oscillate between these bulk up and lean down phases and you may not get that balance immediately right. So going back to your question, The raise was relatively painless. Over the course of a year, we had investors open up networks. One of the perfect examples is uh, an angel investor named Peter Frischoff, sort of like the grandfather or godfather of Osmosis. (laughs) He started Medscape back in 1995. And Medscape is an iconic brand. It's the crown jewel of WebMD. And he saw Osmosis as being like the video version of that and saw a lot of opportunity for us. And so he invested. And then through him, we've had a ton of additional interest, including Alan Patrickoff from Greycroft, who then came in and invested on in that on that seed around that as well. well. So what we found is if you can if you can find a few core super angel type investors who are well connected, the fundraising is relatively easy because people just kind of trust what that person is doing. They should do their diligence, of course. Right. But for the most part, having Peter, having Alan, having Jerry, I'm here in Colorado too, with one of our investors, Jerry Hartung, who's a very successful serial entrepreneur. Having him on board, he brought in our largest investor who then invested like a million dollars. So yeah, I think it's been relatively painless for us. And, and now we're looking at potentially doing a series A. We've gotten a term sheet from a, a great firm that wants to do a preemptive round and we're, we're going through that process Awesome. Now.
0: And yeah, and to that point about investing and everything else, it's kind of ties into like, what is your mission? Your, not mission, what's your vision for the company moving forward?
1: We spent a lot of time the past year going through those exercises. You know, our big hairy Audacious goal by 2025 Is that osmosis will have educated over a billion people. Right. And so that's clearly a big, hairy, audacious goal because by then there'll be about nine billion people in the world. So, you know, 11% of all people will have been educated by osmosis. It sounds far fetched, I'll admit, because at this point we're only at, you know, like five million or so who've touched our content. But honestly, you know, that's, we only need 200 times that, right? <laughs> and we have six years to do it. So what I mean by that is, you know, there aren't going to be a billion doctors, right? right? Like one out of 10 people are not going to be doctors. So the vision was set intentionally because, uh, so the vision is everyone who cares for someone will learn by osmosis. And that's set intentionally and modeled after Nike. So if you're familiar with Nike's vision, it's, or mission, it's to provide inspiration and innovation to uh, every athlete in the world. And then there's an asterisk on athlete, which you're probably aware, the athlete, the way they define athlete is if you have a body, you're an athlete. And so we believe the same thing because everyone cares for someone, right? You're a personal trainer. So you're actually, you are a caregiver and you help people in that way. But, um, you know, even if you're like a lawyer and you don't typically associate yourself with providing care, you do. I mean, you have kids, you have your parents, you want to know what diabetes is. You want to know what asthma is. And so we've been very fortunate in that about 15% of our YouTube comments are directly from patients and family members. So, to get to that goal by 2025, essentially we're figuring out ways to get not only our content, but our platform to as many people as possible. So, whether you're a parent and you just want to understand why you should vaccinate your kids, that's one of the billion people. Or you're a nursing student who uses osmosis all three years during his education in nursing school you know, we're fulfilling our mission by reaching both.
0: Yeah. And there, I don't know if it's the, I think it's about the, the magic of thinking big or something like that where it mentions like it's almost easier to pursue those huge goals than it is to kind of meddle in the middle because it's just not, you don't get people excited for that. It's just not the same as trying for something big and seeing what you can really do with it. So there's something to be said for trying with those BHAG goals. And with that in mind, how do you spend your time day to day, week to week, month to month?
1: Yeah, it's something I think about a lot and I've asked for a lot of advice over the last few months. So, you know, you need to find like levers of like levers. So we brought on a chief operating officer, my business school professor, Jeff Busgang is the general partner of Flybridge. And they had the CEO summit, which was extremely useful because I met CEOs of companies that were, you know, way bigger than us. And they were talking about how they manage their schedule. And one of their force multipliers was bringing on a head of operations or a COO. And so I was traveling all the time. I did all the sales, uh, which is good. I think all founders should be doing that initially, because that's how you connect with the customers and understand their needs and problems. But then it just wasn't scalable. We were getting too many inbound requests. I was going to conferences, and other parts of the business were suffering. So we brought on the COO, and one of his main roles is to was he just took that completely over yeah. from me. And that gave me the ability to then go back to the fundraising or... Things like that. So my day to day now is very much. I do a lot of recruiting and vision setting. Do a lot of thought leadership. Like I write for Forbes pretty regularly. I run the team meetings and and make sure the culture is still there. It's you know very important for me to still meet with each and every teammate as they get onboarded, and then also to um, to do one on ones with all my direct reports. And so uh, so I I I go you know I would say about twenty percent of my time is actual like core execution stuff because we still have functions that I need to hire for. And then the rest of the time, you know, goes between team development, you know, coaching, strategy, vision setting, and investor management. Okay. And
0: it's pretty clear. It's pretty obvious that you either listen to books, read books or something. I'm curious on like how you approach like that side of things, you know, outside the business, like growing, learning, developing as a, as a CEO, as a entrepreneur, like what are some of those resources and how, when does that take place for you?
1: Yeah. So that was one of the biggest things that has, has influenced my growth over the past year. So I wrote an article for Forbes back in December called uh, about seed habits, which I'll send to you. Um, and essentially last year, you know, I was always a cardio guy, did, you know, endurance races, did like an Ironman marathon. And like during those cardio exercises, I would always just listen to music. But then when I switched to strength training, because I wanted to to work on some specific parts of uh, development, physical development, I then was, you know, I didn't need to listen to rock as I was lifting weights. I started listening more to audiobooks and I had listened to, you know, maybe a couple audiobooks a year in the past, but then I came back with like a force uh, doing your know, four to five strength training a week um, for an hour, you know, a yeah. day, you know, listening to an audiobook at two to three X, you can get through a lot of books and see patterns between, you know, the Da Vinci book and Ray Dalio and principles. And you can see kind of how those people are similar and how they diverge over the course of, you know, 500, 600 yeah. years. And so I've learned a lot from just the reading. It's like, you know, I probably read now two books a week at this point with just audio booking. And so many of the things that we've done at osmosis have been a direct result of that. So we even have a dedicated Slack channel where when people, if anybody on the team wants to read any book, we will pay for that book. As long as they submit a book report that uh, kind of has a major takeaway and an actual next step for the rest of the team to take. So we want to have this kind of hive mind where we're all reading different things, and in some cases the same book, like Creativity Inc. Oh yeah, Catmo. Yeah, yeah Catmo. It's such a. Gr- it was one of the top three books I read last year. Awesome.
0: Yeah, yeah it's funny you mentioned that because I'm. I think I'm the exact opposite in term when it comes to music versus audiobooks. <laughs> for so, uh, for for lifting I actually I prefer uh to have the music and for running because it's long I'm like how am I going to make it this long running this long run I need something like <laughs> more engaging like, as, as a story that keeps me going and so I do the audiobooks but I definitely think there's something to be said for working out and then listening to audiobooks but you find the mix of like yeah. Music versus audiobook. which, yeah, it depends on each each person, but it does like, it is seems like a life hack because like, it's like, oh, well, I'm going to work out anyways. And I can also read or you know, listen to this book where I don't normally have a lot of time for it. It's just the perfect combination. It seems like, and as you've been through, you know, growing osmosis, I'm curious
1: on how you kind of manage the ups and downs of, of entrepreneurship. So another thing that came from this book from Felicia's ventures, learning to lead is a common thread was the co-founder, the importance of a co-founder. And so I'm in awe of single founders who are able to do all of that stuff because I think, you know, there's some things, you know, you can't tell your team, you can't tell your, your spouse because they may not be able to relate, you can't tell your investors. Like, you know, the, your co-founder is in the trenches with you. And fortunately with Ryan, um, my co-founder, not only you know has he become my best friend, but we also, you know, when I've been low because something happened, we lost a deal or, um, you know, he's been he's been able to pick me up and vice versa. And so I think the chances of both of us kind of being on a low and negatively reinforcing each other, uh, that's happened maybe twice in our entire history. And so I think that's been a core aspect. The other thing is just perspective. I mean, let's be real about kind of the time we live yeah. in and the geography we live in and the opportunities we have. Um, you know, We just need to be incredibly grateful for like all the opportunities we have and what we're able to do here. So I think you can lose perspective. And if you're only reading TechCrunch all the time about how successful everyone <laughs> yeah. else is, and you're comparing comparing their highlight reels to kind of what your day-to-day is, you're going to lose perspective. And so I think being able to attach kind of your, don't attach your personal identity to your entrepreneurial journey, because there are plenty of people who are successful whose companies have failed, and vice versa. People who've had very successful companies who then you know, their personal lives fall apart. And so I think it's very important to just put things in perspective and and show gratitude along the way. Uh, And we're actually taking that, you know, taking that um, realization to our users. So we're encouraging our users to carve out some time in their day-to-day study schedules to express gratitude to those who've gotten them. Because a lot of these med students and, and other health professionals, you know, are burning out and are losing perspective. Not only how fortunate they are to be in that position, but, you know, how grateful they should be that people let them into their lives. In ways that let them help them, so I think uh, I think loss of perspective is something that happens to entrepreneurs as well as health professionals, and you know being able to show gratitude and. And reflect our, our ways. To yeah, I think
0: that. that's, in, that's incredibly po- important and in that perspective aspect of it. It can be obviously so challenging with the age of Instagram, the age of, yeah, with the tech cruncher, everyone kind of showcasing their best self all the time. And you think that's how it's, it always is, but it definitely isn't. And, you know, I actually talk with my best friend who's an entrepreneur as well about that kind of frequently of like, yeah, we had to constantly kind of step back and be like, yeah, look, there are very, very, very few Zuckerbergs who are, you know, whatever age and do these crazy big companies, but that you don't have to compare. Like you don't need to at all. Like you can do what you have to do and understand like the timeline you're on and what, as long as, for me, at least, as long as I'm progressing, I feel good. Um, and that's kind of one of the things that's always helped me. Because if you compare, there's always gonna be someone doing something bigger and better than you. So it doesn't do any good really <laughs>
1: in that capacity. Well, one of my favorite quotes on that is, in your 20s, you care about what everyone else thinks about you. In your 40s, you don't care what anybody else thinks about you. And in your sixties, you realize that nobody was thinking about you all along. <laughs> <laughs> so even though everyone knows who Zuckerberg is, I mean, how much does he affect your right. everyday life? And and frankly, you know, there are a lot of negative things that come with that type of fame, right? Like now he's been a target for all these different things, and he, you know, in general, like the brand him, Donald, like a lot of people's brands, they tend to, you know, people are going out for blood with Elon Musk. I mean, who's an incredibly impressive person, but every for every great article there is about him. There's another article about how unhinged yeah. he is. Do you want that kind of publicity for yourself, for your family? I think it's just understanding what your core values are and designing around that as opposed to kind of letting society put, put, put its, you know, its values yeah. on you.
0: Oh, exactly. And thinking about like what the actual day-to-day... Is like for them, like you have no idea what they're like day to day. Are they even happy? Like you have no idea about any of that. It's just what you see on the outside. Looking back on you know what you've already done with with osmosis in your career so far, I'm just curious if there's any like lessons or takeaways that kind of stand out for you.
1: Yeah, it's a really good good question. I mean, I think I think the number one thing that's kept me grounded and made made me happy is just people, just prioritizing people. So I had my 30th birthday in January out in Tahoe. And, uh, you know, I had 16 people, uh, closest friends some from college, some from business and med school. Um, and then a lot of my teammates. And like, you know, we could be working on anything. And um, I mean, fortunately, we're working on something that's very mission driven. Yeah. But just having the people you spend time with on a day to day basis, whether they're work colleagues or your personal you know, relationships, having them be your friends is just so uh, helpful right? Because I want to work with these people, I want to see them every day. That makes a big difference in my quality of life. So That's one big takeaway. The other kind of th- I would say is just having a core value and belief system, I think is also very important. So and trying to figure that out as quickly as you can. Because if you don't have that kind of grounding, you could be chasing anything. And at this point, I don't want to be a serial entrepreneur, I don't want to start things and sell them and, and keep doing that. At this point, like, I would love it if I was like Peter Frischoff and 23 years later, everyone still knew what Osmosis yeah. was and what we're trying to accomplish. So I would love to be like, you know, building an iconic legacy company that reaches the billion people in 2025 and more by 2030. So I think having that strong vision and and if maybe not every day, but if on a week to week basis a moving average, you wake up and you're even more excited. Than you were the previous week about the things you're doing. I think that's just a good sign.
0: Yeah. And there's so many more questions I could ask, but I know we have a time constraint. Maybe we maybe can talk in our time, but where can people
1: find Osmosis, hear more about what you're doing, and yeah, connect with you guys? Yeah. So uh, it's easyosmosis.org. You just go there, you can create a free account, and you'll start getting, getting emails. We have a pretty big Instagram, uh, YouTube, Facebook, and, and small Twitter following. And then you know, people could just email me too. Like I'm always happy to connect. Uh, I've benefited a lot from entrepreneurs who took the time to just shoot me a quick email back when I was asking them on advice, you know, what is the safe note? And what, how is that compared to convertible debt or things like that? So if people want to email me at shiv at osmosis.org, happy to do that. I won't promise (laughs) I'll respond right away. But, but in general, you know, just the fact that you're doing this, I'm also grateful because, you know, it's really these type of podcasts where people can get raw and and open. Um, That I think I've listened to and it's made a big impact in, in kind of what I've done.
0: Yeah. And this was a lot of fun. And I think there's a lot of insights for people starting companies and just to be inspired by someone driven by a mission. And I really appreciate the time. And uh, thank you for coming on today, Shiv.
1: Justin, thanks so much for having me. And congrats on all, all the success of the podcast as well
0: much appreciated. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. As always, the show notes are over at justgogrind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show over at patreon.com slash just go grind. And please, please leave a rating and review over on iTunes. It does help more people find the show. Hope you enjoy this episode. Have a great day.